Thank you, worship team, for leading us in delightful, delightful music and celebration and singing our praises to God. Thank you. That was lovely. Thank you. And good preparation for what we're going to talk about this morning. Um, it's always a little unusual to come to a church where you've never been before and you've never met me and I've never met you and uh, you're kind of wondering who this guy is and I'm kind of wondering who you are. And uh, my only connection, of course, is through uh, Kevin and Gerda. And um, he said, I started teaching in 1978. He started his schooling in 1982, all right? So you just need to know that uh, he's been around a long time. (laughs) I don't know how Gerda has put up with him all these years. But uh, Kevin and Gerda have been really good friends of, of ours, of mine, in particular, I've had the wonderful opportunity to be part of his ministry in various churches that he's been in, and it's a delight to be with you. Uh, Kevin was an okay student. <laughs> uh, he's a very good organist, by the way. If you ever hear him get a, play the organ, he's a very, very good organist. Um, he used, back in the 80s, right, we had organs and pianos. Uh, well, have a piano, that's lovely. Um, but uh, all our chapels were organ and piano. And uh, Kevin used to play for our chapels in, at London Baptist Bible College and Seminary. So I, that's the one memory. I, I, don't have him, I don't have any memories of him being in class because, <laughs> number one, I wasn't sure he was there. Number two, he was not an outstanding student. <laughs> but he was an outstanding organist, and I really enjoyed that. All right. Enough on Kevin, all right? <laughs> Pastor Kevin actually was a very, very good student, and he went on and did uh, a master's degree and a doctor's degree, and uh, actually a, a very, very good student. So it's a great delight to be with you. Thank you for allowing me to be part of this. I know you're doing this series in the Psalms, and uh, I understand last week uh, you were in Psalm 3. Uh, I think you've been in a couple prior to that, and then next week... Uh, In fact, I think Pastor Kevin did uh, Psalm 73, somewhere along the line here, which, of course, is my favorite psalm, and I'm quite annoyed that he took that one, then asked me to come. Um, But uh, actually, I should preach Psalm 73 in order to get it right. (laughs) Actually, he probably stole my notes anyhow, so he had it right. Um, And uh, Psalm 88 is what he's dealing with next week. Um, And uh, hang on to your hats on that one. Um, Psalm 88 is a tough, tough psalm. Probably the toughest psalm in the whole uh, book of Psalms. And to tackle that one is a, is a challenge. So I, I'm, glad you're, I'm, I'm glad I didn't get that one and Pastor Kevin took that one. But that, it is a tough, tough psalm. And, but it's in the Bible. And we need to deal with it. We need to talk about it. We need to realize that it's there and pick up what God wants us to hear through that uh, psalm and how he wants to speak to us uh, through that psalm. So um, working in the psalms is something that I've been doing for years, and so it was a delight for, for uh, Pastor Kevin to call me and say, could you uh, participate? I do have to tell you one story, though. Uh, this past couple of weeks, um, my daughter and I were out in uh, uh, Quebec, um, and I, she was taking a, um, uh, she's a uh, she teaches history in French in a school in, in Cambridge. And so she was upgrading her French in a, in a course at Laval. And I kind of went along for the ride, just kind of, you know, just to be there and be her transportation and that kind of thing. So 
So I, uh, I had some time to kill, and, and uh, I, I'm working on a book, so I was doing some writing, and, but uh, I'm also a cyclist and a mountain bike cyclist. And uh, Mount St. Anne is there, and there's a lovely set of mountain bike trails and that kind of thing. But in order to uh, get onto the mountain bike trails, you have to go up the mountain. And so I was working my way up the mountain at Mount St. Anne, up this trail, and wouldn't you know it, I don't carry a phone. Um, I'm one of the dinosaurs of this era, but I do carry a a little flip phone for emergencies only. And usually the only person that calls me is my wife. And so I am carrying the phone because I'm alone and this kind of thing. And I just came through this really, really hard part, uh, right down in granny gear, just grinding away. And my phone rings. It's in my back pouch of my jersey. So I basically fall off my bicycle and grab my phone, expecting fully that it was going to be my wife, for some emergency of some kind, and it's Pastor Kevin. (laughs) Halfway up the mountain at Mount St. Anne, and he's calling me to talk about what I should be preaching on today while I'm mountain biking. Always has been a pain. Anyhow. (laughs) What a joy to be here. And... uh, this morning we uh, we're going to meditate on a on a on a psalm that has spoken powerfully to me over over many many years and so it's a joy to be able to share this with you this morning. I don't know how many of you uh, remember Bette Midler. Anybody remember Bette Midler? Of course. What was her most famous song? Well, how about from a distance? All right. Anybody remember Bette Midler and From a Distance? You can go home and play the video on YouTube. It's, it's awful. But if you remember the lyrics, I, I remember when she came out with this song and everybody just thought it was fantastic, right? I, I, it, it was played in church. I heard it played at funerals, at weddings. This, this song called... From a distance. Listen to the lyrics, okay? I just, this is how we're going to start this morning. From a distance, the world looks blue and green and the snow-capped mountains white. From a distance, the ocean meets the stream and the eagle takes to flight. From a distance, there's harmony and an echo through the land. It's the voice of hope, it's the voice of peace, it's the voice of every man. From a distance, we all have enough and no one is in need. And there are no guns and no bombs and no disease and no hungry mouths to feed. From a distance, we are instruments marching in a common band, playing songs of hope, playing songs of peace. They're the songs of every man. And God is watching us. And God is watching us. And God is watching us. From a distance. From a distance, you look like you're my friend, even though we are at war. From a distance, I just cannot comprehend what all this fighting's for. And God is watching us. And God is watching us. And God is watching us from a distance. Fascinating. From a distance, God watches us. And there's no pain. 
and no war and no disconnect and no brokenness and no cursed world and everything is blue and green, snow-capped mountains white from a distance. Is that the God of the Bible? Is that the God we worship? A God that doesn't deeply interact with the pain and suffering and hurt and sorrow of our lives, of our world? Is he watching from this deistic point of view where everything is far away and he set the world in spinning and then kind of sat back and watches from a distance. The psalm we want to look at says something a little bit different than that. So I invite you to take your Bibles or your phone or your iPad or whatever you're carrying and turn with me to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. And we're going to find a very different picture of God that will bring joy and hope and confidence to our hearts and lives. If we think about our God, who in fact doesn't watch us from a distance, but is near and caring and intimate and deeply involved in our lives. And that is to bring joy and celebration, and confidence, and hope in a God who loves us so deeply and is so deeply embedded in our day-to-day living. Psalm 139. You have searched me, Lord, and you, have, you, have, you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, oh, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me, and such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. And your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light will become like night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you and the night will shine like the day for the darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place and when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them ever came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. And when I awake, I am still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you bloodthirsty, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. 
Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them as my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God has promised to bless the public reading of his word. This is a fascinating psalm. It starts with the title, For the Director of Music of David, a Psalm. The director of Music was the choir director. Uh, the author would write the psalm. They would give it to the choir director. The choir director would teach the choir, and the choir would teach the people. And so this very explicitly is a psalm that was intended for the public consumption, the public usage of God's people in ancient Israel. It's a Davidic psalm, comes from David. So coming out of the heart of his own experience, as well as his giftedness as a musician. There are a number of different categories of psalms. There are praise psalms, there are thanksgiving psalms, there are psalms of trust, there are psalms of lament. Next week you're going to hear about a psalm of lament, Psalm 88, Psalm 3 is a psalm of, psalm of lament. This psalm fits into a couple of different categories. There's a thanksgiving element to it. There's a trust element to it. There's a bit of a lament in it and a particular kind of lament called imprecation. And you heard me read one little section near the end of the psalm that was rather harsh. And that's what we call an imprecation. We'll talk about that in a minute. The psalm is a psalm of celebration and wonder. And this is important to understand because... So often, I've heard this psalm used as a kind of finger-pointing saying, Watch out! God knows what you're thinking! Or, you can never run and escape God! He knows where you are all the time, and He will find you! That's not the point of the psalm. The psalmist is overwhelmed with the amazing reality that the God of the universe would know His name. Would know His thoughts even before He even thinks them. It doesn't matter where he goes. God's right hand will guide him. So the psalm is a spirit of celebration. The spirit of joy. The spirit of uh, being overwhelmed with the amazing grace and love and intimacy that God has with us. There's a framing device in the psalm. You'll notice that it starts with search and know. And it's a statement of, you do search and you know, and that's a good thing. And at the end of the psalm, he uses the exact same phrase, search and know. Only now he switches it, and it becomes a prayer. So please, keep searching. Keep knowing. Don't stop what you're already doing. He is finding it something of great joy, of great confidence, of great celebration. And something that he wants God to continue to have happening in his life. I see the psalm dividing in itself into three parts. In verses 1 to 18, we'll see what I call celebration. Then in verses 19 to 22, that little curse section, that little imprecation section, I call it confidence. And then in verses 23 and 24, we have it ending with a prayer. So we're going to walk through the psalm and just kind of walk through it slowly and just kind of explain a few things as we go. So we start with celebration. 
The psalmist starts with this celebration of God's intimate connection in his life. And he's going to talk about three things in this celebration. He's going to talk about his invasive knowledge. He's going to talk about his pervasive presence. And he's going to talk about his wonderful creation. Now, a lot of folks will go to Psalm 139 in that little section and will start talking about the omnis, his omniscience, his omnipresence, his omnipotence. And that could be found here. But when we tend to think about the omnis, we tend to think about grandiose. He's all powerful. He's everywhere present or everything is in his presence. He's, he's omnipotent. He's, he's amazing in his power. So we tend to, when we use those omnis, we tend to think in terms of grandiose, of, of large, of, of cosmic, amazing, overwhelming. But this is not what he's talking about. He's talking about intimacy. He's talking about deep, deep, deep penetration into our lives and the wonder and joy that that brings. So we start with celebration. The psalmist is celebrating God's intimate reality in his life. And the first thing he talks about is his invasive knowledge. You have searched me and you know me. Amazing that the God of the universe would, 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 would have that intimate relationship, David says, with me, with us, with his people. You know when I, it doesn't matter where I go, it doesn't matter what I do, you know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive, perceive my thoughts from afar. Yes, you are a distant God in that sense. But the reality is, you are an intimate God that knows the very things that I'm thinking about. As you were driving to church this morning, your thoughts that you're thinking about right now, God knows about those things. The things that are hurting, the things that are painful, the things that you're, you're contemplating, the things you're confused over, the things you're wondering about. God knows, is aware, cares, loves, in light of all those things. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Amazing. We're spending a little time at the cottage uh, we have a family cottage up in Muskoka uh, that we've had since the 60s. It's the only way we could afford anything like that. And uh, at night, you'll, you'll step out in the deck, and you'll look at the sky, and it, it's unbelievable, the Milky Way and the stars and all that kind of thing. And you just think, wow, amazing. God is beyond that. And then you read Psalm 139, he says, and, he said, and, and, and you get the notion that, yeah, it is amazing. Psalm, Psalm, 100, Psalm 113 says that he is enthroned above the heavens. But he knows my name. He knows my pain. He knows the deep and painful moments of my life. Wow. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. Four times you get this word no in this little section here, right? You hem me in behind and before. That's a picture of a shepherd that that builds a a sheepfold and and hems in his sheep. And and you lay your hand upon me. That's a hand of blessing. As each sheep comes in, he counts them and he lays his hand on each sheep every night to make sure that they're all there. 
And you lays, he lays that hand of blessing, hand of care, hand of love. You hem me in behind me before you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. And by the way, that word wonderful occurs in a verse that we all know. Isaiah 9, 6. His name shall be called wonderful. It's the same word. Pala. Amazing. Overwhelming. His name will be called miracle worker. The same word. Such knowledge is too amazing. Miraculous. For me, too lofty for me to attain. So he celebrates his invasive knowledge. He then celebrates his pervasive presence in verses 7 to 12. Where can I go from your spirit? And by the way, that's not a statement of, oh, no, God will find me. No, no, no. It doesn't matter where I go. God's already there. Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, if I make my beds in in Sha'ol, Sadeps. You are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, go to the east. If I settle on the far side of the sea, I go to the west. Even there your hand will, it's not find me, it will guide me. Your right hand, the hand of strength, your right hand will hold me fast. By the way, in the Bible, there's no word for left-handedness. Now, we know about left-handed people. Ehud was a left-handed person. The Benjaminites were all left-handed people. So where do we get left-handed in the Bible? Well, the only way they can say left-handed in the Bible is to say that you're weak in your right hand. <laughs> Sorry about that, you South Paws. <laughs> yeah. So, always... And by the way, that is not a... Uh, anyhow, I'll, I'll leave that one alone. I'm going to have some left-handed people talking to me afterwards, I know. But the, le- the right hand was always viewed the hand of strength. And your right hand will hold me fast. Maybe the darkness, maybe when that shroud of darkness comes over us at night and we're looking at the ceiling in that darkness and we don't know whether God even knows we exist. Maybe that shroud of darkness hides us from the care and love God, that when we're crying in the night, dear God, help me. Maybe the ceiling's brass. Maybe his eyes can't penetrate that darkness. What's he say? Surely the darkness will hide me and the light will become night around me. Maybe that's the case. No. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day. For darkness is as light to you. And it doesn't matter how dark that night is. He sees us. He knows us. He loves us. What an amazing, amazing thought. Celebrates God's invasive knowledge. Celebrates God's invasive presence. And then he celebrates God's creative power in verses 13 to 18. And he talks about how he was formed in the womb. I know we use these verses as kind of anti-abortion uh, verses, but that's, and, and sure, that I, I think there's a, maybe an application there, but that's not the point. The point is the wonder that God is involved in, in, the, in, in, in that intimate detail of the moment of our conception. 
Celebration. You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. There's that same word again. Palah. And then he says it again. Your works are wonderful. Talking about his, his, him being created. Three times in the psalm we find this wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Palah. His name shall be called wonderful. Amazing. Overwhelming. My frame was not, I I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. And he picks up on some ancient Near Eastern imagery there in terms of how they perceive uh, conception happening. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them ever came to be. He knows the details of our life even before we were conceived. Amazing to think about that. Billions and billions and billions of people. And he knows each one that intimately. And you and I are part of that wonderful reality. Wow. Verses 17 and 18 are the conclusion to this, you know, this, this creative power statement. But in, in many ways, it's, it's, it's the conclusion to this first whole stanza on celebration. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. And when I am awake, I'm still with you. And I teach the, student, teach the students this psalm. I say, okay, we're going on a field trip. Bring a hat and a bottle of water. We're going to go and find a beach and start counting the grains of sand. It's going to take a while. When we get down with one beach, there's another beach. Amazing to think about, right? Wow. You know what? I don't think it's a hyperbole. I think this is exactly God. Infinite. Unmeasurable. Amazing. When I awake, I am still with you. It's not you are still with me. I am still with you. And that's a very different idea. It's a beautiful one. We think about it. So the first stanza has everything to do with celebration. Celebrates God's invasive knowledge. Wonderful. Amazing. Beyond my imagination. Too lofty for me to attain. He celebrates his pervasive presence. It doesn't matter where we go. God is already there. And his hand will guide us. Celebrates his creative power. Amazing to think about that, at the, even at the, in the most minute moment of conception. God is very much part of who we are and his love for us at that point. Now the psalm changes and the tone changes. A lot of people, a lot of churches, when they read this psalm, will actually skip these verses because they're painful. And I remember I was doing an exposition and talking about this psalm in a, in a, in a church uh, study. We were, it, was a, it was a Sunday night study, and uh, I was working in this psalm and some other kinds of things. And I made the comment that, that, uh, that often uh, churches, when they read this in public reading of Scripture, they'll skip verses 19 to 22 and go straight to verse 23. And I was talking about how that's completely inappropriate. This is the word of God. We don't have the right to skip something we don't like. We don't have that privilege. 
And it was fascinating because I was talking about that and kind of ranting on that a little bit. And after the service, after our teaching time, uh, the worship leader came to me and said, uh, um, he was one of my students, by the way, uh, uh, Dr. B, um, we read this psalm this morning in church. And guess what we did? We skipped those verses. No, they're here. We don't have the privilege to not like certain parts. We can maybe not like it, but we don't have the privilege to skip it. And so the tone changes. And it catches us by surprise because he's, he's been in this celebratory mood and how precious are your thoughts and amazing and overwhelmed. Then all of a sudden, he, he, he kind of he, he looks at God and he says, if only you, God, would slay the wicked. Whoa, where did that come from? Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who are rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them, and I count them as my enemies. And by the way, that's the tone of voice that you need to read those verses in. Right? This is poetry. There is a dynamic to this thing. All right? So what's he doing? Why did he put this section in here? This is a part of the Psalms that we call the imprecations or curses. And you'll find them, for example, in in Psalm 137, a couple couple of Psalms back. You got the classic imprecation where he says, Remember, O Lord, what the Edomites did on the day that Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to their foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Whew. I don't think we've opened too many worship services with those verses. But they're there. So what's going on? The psalmist, by using these verses, is doing a couple of things. Number one, he's recognizing that there is evil in the world. And he's not living in some kind of bubble that, that ignores the fact that there's evil in the world. And that God doesn't know about that. And as he's talking about the intimacy of God, not watching from a distance, he isn't watching where there are no guns, bombs, and wars. He is deeply involved in the reality of the pain of this world and its brokenness. And he's acknowledging that. So that's the first thing that he's doing here. He's acknowledging the fact that God is aware of that and he's referring it back to God. The second thing that I think we need to understand about these curses in the, in the, in the Psalms is that the psalmist is very much rooted in what we call the, the Abrahamic covenant. And if you remember, way back when God formed Israel, he formed a covenant with their forefather Abraham. And in that covenant, he said, I will bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you. And what's he doing here? He is simply calling on God to be true to the covenant that he made with Abraham, his forefather, David's forefather. So you've got to take it back to the Abrahamic covenant and realize that there is a consistency here and he is calling on God to be true to that covenantal promise that he made way back in Genesis 12. 
The next thing that we need to note about these, these imprecations, and, and, and the big question is, okay, how do these connect with Jesus' statement, love your enemy? Well, we need to understand that love your enemy is not something that's just New Testament. The Old Testament talked about loving your enemy. The book of Proverbs says, if your enemy's donkey falls into a ditch, help, help your enemy get the donkey out of the ditch. Love your enemy. So that was not a new ethic with Jesus. That was an ethic that had pervaded the Old Testament. And we find that these imprecations or these curses tend to revolve around institutions or movements that are opposed, that are arrayed against God and his kingdom. And David, who is a representative of the kingdom, stands up and says, you need to act, God, on our behalf because we are under the the boot, the thumb, the harassment of evil and the evil one. And we're calling upon you to do something about it. So it tended tended to focus on institutions, on movements, But when it came to individuals, when it came to specific people, we're called to love them. If our enemy walked into this building right now, we would say to him, to that person, what you represent, what what movement that you are part of that is opposed to God and his kingdom, we pray that God will take you out. We'll take that movement out. We take that institution out. But you, we want to reach out to you and tell you that we love you. And in the name of Christ, we want to make sure that you understand that. I think that's kind of what's going on when when David and others deal with the imprecations in the psalm. So it's always being referred back to God. It's never vengeance is ours. It's always vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. It takes it back to God. It's rooted in the Abrahamic covenant, tends to focus on movements and institutions that are anti-God. The ethic of loving your enemy is found in the Old Testament. It's not new with Jesus. And then the other thing, the final thing we need to say about it, and there's all kinds more, all kinds of things that we could say about this, is that imprecations are found in the New Testament. Jesus and Paul both pronounced curses. Chorazim, Bethsaida, Capernaum. Pharisees, kind of the focus of Jesus, some, some very, very strong statements. Paul, beginning of Galatians, if any man preach another gospel, let him be accursed. And by the way, he says, if you didn't hear it this first time, let me say it again. And he said it a second time. So we need to understand that this is not some lower spirituality that we find in the Old Testament. It is something that we find throughout the whole Bible. And we refer it back to God. We ask him to acknowledge the fact that there is evil in the world. And so what the psalmist is saying here in this particular psalm, as he's saying, you know the depths of my heart. I am bearing my soul. You know the very thoughts that I have. You've searched me and you know me. Before a thought is even on my mind, you know it. And then he says... You know what? I hate what you hate. The wickedness of this world. As I bear my heart, I'm one with you, O God. I love what you love. 
And so as he turns and he addresses the wickedness that's out there, that's why he asks the question, if, if only you, God, would slay the wicked away from me, you are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. He is bearing his heart, saying you can go to the very depths of my life and know that I hate what you hate. I love what you love. You, I have nothing to fear in you being near. And then he says, do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who rise up in rebellion against you? You and I are one on this. And I am not afraid for you to penetrate the very depths of my heart to see the reality that's true in my life. I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them as my enemies. And so this is a statement of confidence. It's a statement that, uh, uh, of affirmation that he's one with God in how he views the world, how he views evil, how he views wickedness, And he's not afraid to allow God to penetrate the depths of his heart. And I find this little section so helpful. We need to celebrate our confidences before our God. We get get told so often by preachers, people like me, as we stand up and preach and we get the finger pointing going and we, we, we get the kind of the, you know, everybody needs to shape up and do it better and become more spiritual. And, and granted, that's throughout the Bible. There's lots of exhortation in that area, by all means. But every now and then we need to, to hear from, from our preachers, from our pastors, from, from each other, from our community, that you know what? <laughs> We're getting a lot of it right. We, we don't need to fear God looking into the depths of our hearts because deep down, we love what God loves. I, I remember being under the ministry of a pastor, bless his heart, it was when I was a student, way back when, when I was in seminary in the U.S. And, and we, I, I love my pastor. But, oh, my wife and I would walk out of there Sunday after Sunday you know, with 40 stripes down our backs, just say, oh, pastor, just tell us once that we're doing a few things right. Just tell us once that you really do love us. Just tell us once that, you know, God is pleased with us. That's what this psalm does. We need not fear the intimacy of God in our lives. No, we're not perfect. David wasn't perfect. We know full well he wasn't perfect. Psalm 51 is there. And yet he was able to write a text, a psalm like this, with that kind of confidence. He then ends with a prayer. And he simply says, please just keep doing what you're doing. Begins and ends with search and know. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. He's a man of piety. He's a man of faith. He knows he doesn't have it together. He knows that he needs constantly the Spirit of God working in his life, bringing him to new places of sanctification and followership of of God. He knows all that. And he 
they praise that God will just keep doing it. So what do we find here? What are some concluding thoughts? And the first one is this. Is God watching us from a distance? Where there are no guns, no bombs, no wars. Everything's blue and green. You look like my friend even though you're my enemy. No. We see a fresh encounter with God that takes us into new and wonderful places. I was reading The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe the other day again. It's been 20 years since I read The Chronicles of Narnia, so I've made it my summer project to read to all the Chronicles of Narnia. What great fun that is. I was reading The, I was reading the Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe this week. And Mrs. Beaver, right? Mrs. Beaver. He's a lion, but he's not a tame lion. But he's a lion that Lucy can bury her face in his mane. Isn't that awesome? C.S. Lewis got that right. It was so wonderful to have him say it that way and develop that throughout his books. And this is a God that we know that's revealed in Jesus Christ. As As we read this psalm, we have an encounter with God that is powerful, unique, mind-shifting, mind-boggling. And the beauty is, we see all this in our wonderful Savior, Jesus of Nazareth. And we see the full triune God in this psalm revealed in Christ. Second thing we see here is, this is amazing good news. This is the gospel. This is what we got to say to the people out there. This is a God that you can know. This is a God that can be part of your life. This is a God and God's people that you can be part of as a community. This is good news. This is the gospel. There's nothing to fear in God being near. We can bear our hearts before God. And yes, we struggle, but God loves to forgive. And we invite all and everyone to participate in what it is to know God through Christ at this level. And at this level of intimacy. Wow. Some of us may have to think differently now. Maybe there's a few of us here saying, you know what? Wow. I, yeah, this, this is not sitting well with me. Maybe there needs to be a bit of a worldview shift going on here. I know I have to keep coming back to the psalm to keep reminding myself of this reality. Of the God that I worship. And love. Confidence and vulnerability hand in hand. Fearlessness and fear hand in hand. So, some of us perhaps need to think differently, maybe teach differently about God, maybe see God differently. So, what is our response? You know, I know how I respond to this. I don't know you, I don't know how you need to respond, what you need to hear, something that I've said, something this text has said, I simply say to you, pray to God and his spirit that something will penetrate deeply into your heart and life and allow the spirit to make that live and work in a new way, in a new reality, in the wonderful hope and confidence and celebration that we have in the nearness of our God. God bless you all.